Hello and welcome everyone to the Coupley Relationship Advice Podcast. Today I'm so delighted to have Zara Arshad joining us. Zara is a licensed therapist and founder of My Ottawa Therapist, which is a thriving practice in Ontario, Canada, where she provides support to individuals and couples. She is a perinatal mental health expert and specializes in working with expecting couples, postpartum couples, and couples with small children. Zara is also the author of Stronger Together, A Couple's Guide to Navigating Your Relationship After Baby. And finally, Zara's a devoted wife and mother. Zara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. We are delighted to have you here. Um, so let's get into it. What brought you into the therapy space and why did you decide to get into this space? Um, so I got into the therapy space mentally pretty much in high school. Um, that's when I had decided like this is the field that I want to approach. Reason being just because of my own family background. Um, my parents are divorced. Um, there's a lot of trauma there. And it was not the most ideal situation or circumstances in which I grew up. So I knew this is definitely... Um, a space that resonates for me. Um, and it's a place where I would fit well and belong because as cliche as it sounds, I wanted to help other families the way I wished that my family had support and help at the time to navigate um, the things that we were trying to get through. And um, so generally, I just knew I want to be in this world. Uh, but I wasn't sure exactly where I would want to fit in. That clarity actually really came to me after I had my first baby about mm -hmm. five years ago. And before we press record, we were getting into, um, we were talking about your book as I speed read, uh, <laughs> went through your book over this week. And we were talking about kind of how extensive um, and all encompassing um, the work around couples therapy um, helping couples build an amazing relationship once you bring children into the mix truly is. Um, and because the way in which you've structured your book, you get into a lot of the fundamentals around communication, um, around understanding attachment. And the idea being that couples can bring that through, um, bring that through as their relationship really changes upon having a kid. So like, what was that clarity like for you? Um, and and how did that shape and change the work that you've been doing since? Yeah, so I was, you know, generally working with individuals, couples, families in my practice, uh, just getting, yeah, just sort of trying it all out uh, when I started my uh, practice. And I always enjoyed working the most, I know, with couples. Um, and then individuals to families, I, I realized, you know, this is not the area that I enjoy so much. Um, ironically enough, because that was a space I thought I really wanted to be in. Um, and then when I had my son in 2017, um, I didn't necessarily experience like postpartum depression or anxiety or, you know, any like, like a mood disturbance per se but I did experience a lot of struggles um, mentally, emotionally, and also relationally with my husband. 
um, because here we were trying to take care of this newborn baby that neither of us really had that experience with. I mean, I had experience raising babies in my families, but it's a completely different ball game when it's your own and you're sleep deprived and neither of us has really done this before. Neither of us has seen each other in this light before as parents. Um, and we're both, you know, just barely like surviving and hanging on and how that starts to take a toll on your relationship. And I remember a lot of it just feeling really alone. Like I found early motherhood in every, actually both my postpartum experiences, I found early motherhood to be like an isolating experience. And I have an incredibly supportive husband thank goodness I'm lucky enough to say that who's very hands-on who really helps who's very supportive who's very understanding and despite all that I find I found it to be a very isolating experience especially when you're uh exclusively breastfeeding so and there was a lot that him and I like he just could not relate to a lot of my emotions and my physical experiences and I was still recovering from you know the physical recovery of birth uh which is rough i think the first time around um and all of that and i'm like wait a second how did i not know about any of this like i went to prenatal classes i went to you know i learned about breastfeeding i learned about how many like poop diapers to look for the first day the second day the third day um you know what your partner needs to be doing like which part of their spine your spine should be pressed when you're having a contraction and then like all these resources were thrown at me for like physiotherapy and pelvic floor and chiropractor um yeah all these things around the birth but nobody had prepared me for what was to come after the birth and definitely no one really ever talks to you about what, what a toll it's going to take a, mentally on you. I feel like that's still something that's now being talked about, but a toll on your relationship with your partner. Um, yeah, so that just really hit me like, wow, I just did not, am I the only one going through this? Because I, I didn't know about this. And I started to like pour through, you know, those... Um, pregnancy uh, groups, uh, websites like uh, what to expect, and baby bump and all that. So I think it was what to expect where I just started to pour through all the posts from other parents, mostly moms. And I was like reading through all of them and I'm like, oh my God, they're all really struggling. Like everyone is really struggling in very many different ways. And a lot of them are also talking about their struggles with their partner, the breakdowns in communication, breakdowns in so many things of their relationship. And then that just kind of got the wheels turning. I, you know, I realized there's a, there's a gap in our um, community, in our society in general um, that needs to be filled. Like couples need to be better prepared to manage their relationship and their mental health after they bring a baby into the world. That's where the idea was born for me. And then it's sort of, I had my second postpartum experience with my daughter who was born at the very start of the pandemic that was like such an incredibly unique and different experience and that took a toll on me I had a lot of postpartum anxiety the first few months and I think that really tested my marriage the most that period that I don't know if it was COVID having a second child all the quarantining all the isolation or was it my postpartum anxiety I don't know what it was but that definitely was taking a toll on my marriage um and then I got really serious about wait a second 
if I'm going through this and I'm a therapist and I do couples therapy, if I'm going through this, what are other couples going through? Mm -hmm. And that's when you decided to, to write the book and kind of double down in this space. Um, and I guess this, let's get into the, the I kind of want to talk about the pandemic because I had a number of friends that had pandemic babies and pandemic pregnancies. And I think it put a whole extra layer of, of pressure into it. I had one good friend that, that had their baby at the very, very beginning of pandemic panic. Um, what was that? What was that like? Um, was it much more, I mean, her experience was, was, was really bad. Um, couldn't get the, couldn't support the support she needed, couldn't come in and see her. Um, how was it for you? It was rough. It was really rough. And um, it, the pandemic began in my eighth month is when the quarantine, the official lockdown began. So like all the nerves kind of began from the beginning because uh, it started from before I even gave birth because diapers were already going on a shortage. Formula was already going on a shortage. Wipes were going out. And I thought my last month, the month that I took off to start my maternity leave was going to be like setting up the nursery and, you know, doing buying pretty swaddles and burp cloths and diapers and wipes. And then suddenly the world has shut down. Amazon is your best bet. Amazon is like wiping out. Um, and the shipping speed in those days was like days, if not weeks, because Amazon was trying to fulfill all these orders. It was to the point where I was, you know, my siblings in the US were offering like, we'll ship you diapers, you know, let us know whatever you're running out in Canada and we'll ship it over to you. And then all this like unknowns around, will my husband be allowed to be with me in the hospital? Will he be with me during labor? Who will watch my son who was two years old? Because at that point, families were quarantining. So technically my in-laws, his grandparents, were their own like bubble in their own house were a bubble everyone's a bubble and there was so much unknown anxiety around well what if my son has something and what if he passes it to his grandparents and god forbid they pass away like there was so much uncertainty in those times now we know way more and way better but that was that time where you just thought if you just even like look at the other person you're gonna catch covid so we just didn't even know where to send our son to for those two, three days we might have to be at the hospital. Will my husband be able to be with me? Will I be birthing this alone? Will I have diapers and wipes and swaddles and things like that for my daughter when she arrives? Um, so just this going into it was all of that. Mm -hmm. And then comes my daughter. And then, as I mentioned, early motherhood anyway, feels like a really isolating experience I think a lot of moms would agree talk about this now because it's mm. an isolating experience in a very literal isolating period you've got no one so any yeah. way you feel isolated in this experience you feel like you don't really have anyone to talk to because nobody really talks about these things anyway I mean I nobody talked to me about their experiences when they had babies so I didn't know who to talk to. And then you think you're the only one going through it. So then you don't want to talk about it. 
<laughs> so yeah, it was a very, very isolating experience. And I think the anxiety of COVID really, really took a toll because it was, again, what if my baby gets it? Nobody can touch her. Nobody can hold her. But then you've got tension with family members because they want to come and see your baby. And then you have to like navigate all these relationships mm -hmm. around you mm -hmm. that really love and care about but you're in this place that unless you yourself are going through that giving birth and just had a baby I don't think family members can recognize what you're experiencing mentally because anyway you've got the anxiety of COVID which everyone has the baseline but then when you're a parent to a newborn with literally zero research on how COVID impacts newborns you're like completely you don't know what you're doing so it was a very isolating experience, very anxious, very anxiety provoking experience and a very testing time, I think, for a lot of relationships um, around me. But I would say that would, that was generally for a lot of people. I think you're right. And and this this is when you decided to do something about it. And look, you kind of have this uh, difficult dynamic and it's one that I see come up a lot when people are like, oh, I'm the couple, I'm the couples therapist, I'm the expert. And now I have the problem. Um, but now I'm in it, it's it I can see how other people can get lost in these in these relationship problems, right? Um, and so what are some of the things that that you began to do? And how did you kind of start to to shift it? Because you essentially have to use your own toolkit in your yeah. own relationship. And I'm just thinking about our audience, thinking about all of the coupling community and beyond listening to this. There's probably a bunch of people who have their first kid expecting their second kid or have their first kid on the way. So I want to make sure that we're also like tailoring it to, to more general as well. Like what are some of the things that you did, but what are some things that people can be looking to do as they prepare to have their first or second child? Yeah. I think my first thing was just getting support for myself because I may be a therapist, but I'm a human first, right? So I was not, I was not a therapist in those days. I did not have my therapist hat on. I was very much human, very much a mother, very much going through the whole roller coaster, you know, struggling in my marriage, struggling in my mental health, all of that. And funny or I, irony is it took me so many months to realize, wait a second, what is going on here? Like I need help. You would think as a therapist, that would be like, duh, the first thing I would do, but that's how unprepared I was to face all these mental health and relationship issues because nobody talks about it. So first things first was, you know, um, finding myself a good therapist and starting to do that work. And I started to you know, yeah, just really seek professional support for myself to sort out what is happening with me and to get myself to a better um, stable ground. Um, and then, you know, I talked to my husband as well. I really let him know what I was struggling with and, you know, what, you know, and how serious it was for me and how seriously we need to work on things together. And I think one thing I've always been conscious about is I don't want to be a therapist in my own marriage. I just don't, I just never thought that that would be a good approach. So I'm always mindful of not trying to be the therapist in our marriage. So it was always about like, okay, we will find a couple's therapist and do the work together because I'm not a neutral party in my marriage. I'm very much biased and with all my stuff. Um, so 
support, professional support always is the number one thing I would recommend to all couples and individuals, regardless of where you are in your phase of life, kids, no kids, pregnancy, one kid, five kids, doesn't matter. Um, get yourself that professional support because it's a really challenging time. And what are some things that that couples can do to prepare? So they have baby number one on the way. Um, Sarah, what are some of the things that you really recommend them to, to talk about, think about? Uh, how can they prepare themselves for what's to come? Baby number one. So that that's a tough one because the thing is you don't know what to expect, right? Because it's your first one. So I feel like there, there, there is only so much preparation technically that you can do. I think it's when you're second and third, you because you've had those experiences, now you can have some serious conversations with your partner. Like, okay, this is what happened last time. This is where we were doing well. This is not where we were doing well. So how can we set ourselves up you know, for better success? So I think baby preparation wise and like how to manage and like, you know, divide roles and responsibilities and do this and do that. I think those conversations would be very tough to have unless you've already had a child because you don't even know what that looks like. So I think that what I would say is you want to really evaluate and focus on your relationship, strengthening your relationship so that it is the foundation is somewhat stable and solid because believe me, you... (laughs) that foundation is going to shake when you bring that baby into your life. Um, And I don't mean that to scare couples. I mean that to prepare couples. It is going to be the best thing of your life. And it's also going to be the most challenging thing of your life. So you want to really solidify that foundation. So I would say, look at, look at what cracks you might have in the foundation, you know, where are the areas of your relationship where you have, let's say some underlying tension or some sort of resentment built in or some things where you and your partner do run into issues. Um, It could be value differences. It could be differences in expectations. It could already be issues related to division of roles and responsibilities. So if you've already have some of those cracks happening in your foundation before this baby comes along, yeah, those cracks are going to deepen after the baby comes, then they're not going to somehow get better. So you want to, you know, sort of solidify those cracks, solidify the foundation, get yourselves on a like a nice, stable, well-connected ground where you're feeling more secure and connected in your relationship. And then when you bring your baby home, expect your foundation to shake, but it should hold up. It should hold up if you've done the work on this end. You're a big fan um, as am I of um, looking into attachment styles and attachment's really interesting because I think it is almost when these foundations start to to shake you can revert to some really ancient behavior um, so for people listening that aren't familiar I'd love you to walk them through how um, attachment can impact them their relationships and especially show up um, after these sort of destabilizing events yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's such a mega topic of its own. So it's tough to just uh cover it very quickly, but it, you know in terms of just to give basic information to people who might not be familiar with the concept, but there's an entire attachment science that you can really get into and study, which is very fascinating. Um but 
essentially the idea is, you know, as humans, we are, our brains are wired to connect and, you know, attach to at least one other person. The idea from an evolutionary perspective is that it helps us survive. Um, because if you're flying solo, you know, think about the homo sapiens, right? Our ancestors, if you're flying solo, something could go wrong, you might die. But at least if you've partnered up with one other person, your chances of survival increase. So that sort of ancient um, ancestral part of our brain is still very much there today where we need this, this one special relationship in our life to attach to for the purposes of survival. Whether we think of it on that way on a conscious level is different, but we have an innate need to attach to someone. Um, and then the first place where your attachment um, relationship builds is with typically your primary caregiver after birth. Um, your mom usually could be your dad, maybe grandparent in someone else's case. If you were adopted, it would be your adoptive family, but it's your primary attachment figure is your parents usually. And that's where you start to um, understand sort of the world where kind of understand who you are and what your worth is and what your value is. And is the world a safe place? Can I trust the world? Can I rely on the world? Is the world a safe place? And that is your world at that point is literally like your mom, your dad, right? So that's where you, and that's where you learn to develop beliefs about yourself and know whether it's safe to cry, safe to emote, safe to let someone know that you're hungry and safe to ask for comfort and support. Or is it not? Is this person consistently going to show through or not to all these cues that I give as a one month old, as a 18 month old, as a three year old? And that's where you start to develop attachment tendencies. So you could be securely leaning you could be avoidantly leaning, you could be anxiously leaning, or you could have the mixed avoidant attachment, avoidant anxious attachment style, which is much more rare. So according to research, I think most of the population, well, I don't know, that's what research says. But because I, I'm in the therapy space, what I see is obviously yeah. the insecure attachment styles, right? But according to research, most, most people are securely attached. Um, but obviously, because I'm in this space, I see more of the insecurely attached couples. And the most common attachment style that I tend to see in therapy is anxious with the avoidant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that that's also there's a whole sort of science that explains um, it's a book called Attached, why the anxious and the avoidance tend to attract each other. And um, so it's good to know. So your your attachment tendencies begin your style sort of starts to develop in childhood, but it's not permanent because you might have had really good, really secure experiences with your parents. And then let's say you could have had horrific experiences, sixth grade onwards with bullying and harassment and, you know, something like that for years, let's say in school. And that could have really shifted your attachment style, for example, or it could have been a really one bad trauma experience that could have happened that would have completely shifted your attachment style or it could have been a series of bad relationships so you could be secure 
and then eventually shift into, let's say, avoidant attachment or anxious attachment, maybe even go back into secure attachment if you ended up in a really good relationship. Or you could be the anxious, the attached, or the avoidantly attached and eventually shift towards secure attachment as a result of more positive relationships and experiences going forward. So they're not permanent, they shift depending on your experiences and your relationships. So it's really, really powerful, in my opinion, to know what your attachment style is, because it what it does is it explains a lot of why you are the way you are and why you show up the way that you do in your relationship. Why do you behave a certain way? Why do you think a certain way? Why do you feel a certain way? Why does your perspective tend to lean a certain way? Once you know your attachment style, it starts to explain a lot of that. And that also kind of comes up again as you start to do these hard things, um, as you parent, uh, as you look at dividing tasks, dividing labor, as you have the additional anxieties of looking after this tiny human, these attachment styles seem to show up again, um, yeah. are perhaps put under the the microscope, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where your entire, like your brain's attachment system becomes quite triggered, right? Because you are literally entering survival mode. When you bring the baby home, let's just even go down to the very, very basics of human needs. You've got, you know, your physiological needs and you've got your emotional needs. And then you are barely meeting your physiological needs at that point. Um, you know, you're, you're heavily sleep deprived. You're not getting enough sleep. That in itself throws your entire brain's functioning off, right? Not being able to eat meals on time, even remembering to eat meals, not being comfortable. For example, if you're the birthing parent, you're still, you still have physical recovery to get through. So you're barely meeting your fundamental physiological needs. And then you're all the while, you must meet your child's physiological fundamental needs because literally they depend on you to survive imagine that pressure and then you know if you're in a relationship with a co-parent you've got your partner who probably has their own struggles or whatever is happening with them and you're living like in this perfect storm of trying to like balance your child's needs your needs your partner's needs you've got a relationship you've got you might have work you have so much happening so I think that's what ends up triggering that entire entire sort of attachment system in your brain and your attachment tendencies and are really really heightened at that point and and these might start showing up in new ways um what are some examples of how uh, anxiously attached parents um or people with a more of an anxious attachment style or more of an avoidant attachment style how do these like maybe show up and i know that you have some pretty cool examples in the book but it'd be cool to kind of hear, hear from your both experience as a therapist and, and from the research that you did, how these tend to show up. Yeah, um, I think in terms of I would maybe go into the communication territory to explain this a little bit more it might resonate more with your listeners. Um, but communication is one of those places where you start to see the attachment tendencies really like verbally show up. So you see the anxious anxious leaning partners tend to you know approach their partners more critically more harshly because it's almost like 
I, I need this sense of like reassurance or a security or a safety or whatever it is that they're looking for right now because they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And one, either they haven't learned the tools or skills to communicate that stuff adequately, uh, appropriately in a healthy way because whatever experiences they got from their parents or whatever it is through life, um, or they have reached out in those ways, vulnerably, compassionately to their partner and their partner hasn't met their needs. So now they're getting harsher and now they're getting more critical. Now they're getting more attacking. Essentially, underneath it, what they're saying is, do you love me? Can I trust you? Can I lean on you? Will you be there for me? Can you just reassure me? That's what they're looking for. But mm -hmm. when those needs are not being met, they're getting harsher and more critical. Um, and what that's doing is it tends to overwhelm the other partner, especially if they're avoidant leaning. Um, you know, they tend to feel more flooded and they want to get away from that because avoidance really want sort of autonomy. And, um, and even if you're not avoidant leaning, like, first of all, nobody likes to be attacked or spoken to harshly or angrily, right? So even if your partner is securely attacked, is more secure leaning and you're anxious leaning, it's, it's gonna be tough for them to keep responding to somebody, let's say who's approaching them harshly. Um, and then if you're avoidant, then for sure, it's more like withdrawing behavior. You might shut down, you might not say anything or you might get really angry, like get defensive and like stomp off. Um, so those types of things start to happen. And then what happens is the anxious, the attached partner tends to get louder, right? Okay, now I need to come after you because you're pulling away. So now I need more of that reassurance from you. I need to know that you're there for me, that you love me, that this is a safe space, that you, you'll help me, I can lean on you. So now I'm coming at you more with more energy. And the avoidant partner is more like, whoa, like this is too much. So I'm going to back up even more. Mm -hmm. And then they get stuck in the cycle. And then eventually you know, the avoidant partner might start getting more critical and attacking or lashing out. Um, and the anxious partner might start to withdraw. If the damage starts to build mm -hmm. up so many years, behaviors will start to change. And then like the worst dynamic to fine as a therapist in therapy is when you've got two withdrawn partners from each other right so both withdrawn now now mm -hmm. neither wants to try or neither is interested or mm -hmm. feels safe enough now to open up because you've got so to slowly I, walk them back to being open to sharing things in a soft way sharing with vulnerability and that trust might not be there that their partner is going to be able mm -hmm. to to take that message uh, interpret yeah. the vulnerability that's sometimes like several layers <laughs> underneath yeah. it right it can come yeah. out in like a, a critic a piece of criticism is really like it might be like you you're not doing this thing around the house but the really the question is are you there for me like, can I exactly. count on you um yeah. and if your partner's defending they 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 get into that defending stance, or then maybe they shut down and they say, "Yeah, I don't do anything. I'm I'm a piece of trash, whatever." Um, you've get then got to try and walk them back, right? Yeah. And what that partner is really saying, like, "I'm scared. I'm feeling helpless. I don't know how to adequately meet your need." But what the other partner is hearing is, 
So I can't count on you. I can't lean on you. So underlie, so there's this communication that's happening on the surface that I mm-hmm. that I hear and I see. And underneath it, when I look at it from an attachment perspective, it's two people who are really, really hurt. Mm-hmm. And they really don't know how to access each other or help each other or help themselves out in that moment. So I always recommend, you know, don't don't wait so long um, where that much damage is being done to your relationship. To my earlier point, get professional support earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't wait to try this out for several years because this is a toxic dance. It's it's a bad one. And that is the the average time that people wait. <laughs> Once this toxic dance begins, the average time people wait is that six years. And by that point, before before reaching out, and by that point, you've got pretty good. At the dance steps. <laughs> this is a dance that you've been repeating oh, over and over and over again. Point, right? You're so the two of you get so good at that dance, each person knows exactly who's gonna step where next. Mm-hmm. And then to break that dance obviously becomes harder. It's not impossible, of course, you can still do it, but now more damage is done. So now we have to unpack more of that, do more healing work. Um, so it's always better to sort out, and then meanwhile mind you you're having more kids too probably in those six years right you went from yeah. one to two and now you're probably pregnant with the third that's right so look at the complexities that start to build so do the relationship work before baby arrives mm-hmm. um, and definitely continue to do it after do you think um do you think i know that that when i was growing up um there was definitely this idea that a baby will fix a relationship. And I remember this like kind of being a dynamic that I saw a lot. Um, And people were like, yeah, our relationship is in trouble. It's on the rocks, but if we have a baby, then it will probably fix everything. Do you think that that's the case? I don't know which genius came up with that idea, but no. I don't know who originated that idea, but what a horrible idea. Because as I said, like a baby, like, of course, we all, most of us, I can say, love, dearly love our babies and their our joy and heart and soul and everything. But they are in a, a, a stressor, you know, in, in like a, a psychological terms, that's what you would call a stressor. Um, it is major. So if you are already struggling and I prob I'm assuming the idea was this happy occasion will bring two parties together. I'm, I'm assuming the idea came from that place that relationship sucks. Maybe two people are really disconnected, really not getting along or whatever. This will be the thing that will just bring the two people together. But yeah, no, I don't think that's the way that it works because if anything it tests your relationship on a whole different other level and maybe even in the relationships that are not doing so well it actually creates more of a disconnect um the baby doesn't cause that disconnect but what you're experiencing and trying to manage all of that is what starts to cause a disconnect right that breakdown starts to happen those cracks that were already there Mm -hmm. um, they break apart even more Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, 
you have you, you touch on quite a bit is around um, resentment. So what are some of the things that like how does resentment rear its head? Uh, what are th- some of the things that you can do when you you can feel it coming or see it coming? How does it express itself? And then how do you walk it back? Yeah. Yeah, resentment is a really common one that um, couples bring up, either one partner or both partners, one that definitely a lot of moms mention. Um, And I think resentment is just the feeling that builds up over time when enough times your need has not been met, your needs are not being met. When enough times you have reached out and your needs have not been met. I think that's where the resentment, the seed of resentment begins. And then if you let years go by, now you've got massive amounts of resentment built up. So I think I, I, I always, whenever I hear the word resentment, I'm looking for, all right, what, what are the needs that are, that are not being met in this relationship? Because um, fundamentally, if your needs are being met, physical, emotional, all those sort of needs are being mm-hmm. met. Um, all other issues are easier to tackle and deal with, right? But when those fundamental needs are not being met, resentment starts to seep yeah. in. Yeah, and I'm thinking of that nice diagram that you have of like some kind of like the ten, the ten needs um, that you that you typically see in a relationship, um, yeah. and and I guess it's important to touch on like the the labor naturally <laughs> a lot of the neighbor labor naturally falls upon mums um especially in these these first these first months um you had some really cool tools on on things that you can get parents to to do together to make sure that that things are getting split up or that mums are being supported um, by their partners i'd love for you to talk a little bit about that um especially for uh, new dads dads to be listening yeah gosh that's a tough one to to like go over in just a few minutes because that there's so much there to unpack uh that I honestly don't even think I was able to unpack a lot of that in my book otherwise I would have had to add at least another 100 pages on there um but I think this is one of those things I wish couples were prepared with ahead of time I think so a lot of what in my work that I've come to learn and through my own experiences is you've got the, this is my theory, okay? So you got, we had, you know, in previous generations, roles were quite divided, right? You had quite patriarchal systems where the dad goes out, is the breadwinner, does the work, nine to five job, comes home, newspaper, relaxes, TV chills. Mom is the homemaker, the caretaker works around the clock, but that's her role. And dad has nothing to do with the kids. I think that was maybe more our grandparents' generation. I think the last generation, which is our parents, you started to see some shifts where women started to enter, you know, the work roles too. So then what happened is dad is still working and now mom is also potentially working, but then that childcare homemaker role is somehow still hers because historically that's always been hers. Um, And now we've got our generation, which is you've got, and I keep saying mom and dad, but that's because I largely work with heterosexual couples. So I don't, I, I cannot speak to 
um, you know, the other side of things. I just want to say that here. So just speaking of heterosexual couples with now what's happening is it's different because I guess in our moms and dads generations, women sort of accepted that quietly, like we'll work, but we'll also take care of the house and we'll also take care of the kids. This generation, our generation is like, yeah, no, we're, we're, we expect you to now step up if we're going to be working or even if we're not going to be working, we had this child together. We have a house that we're running together. I expect you to do the work with me. And many, thankfully, many dads have stepped up and they are now physically contributing in some ways to the house, to the child care you know it was almost unheard of I think two generations ago or even last generation for a dad to be changing a diaper this generation is very normal dads change diapers they feed their babies they wake up at night you 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 are seeing those shifts now so I think this is a generation where that shift is happening and we're sort of trying to figure it out but we don't have have it figured it out. So we're all very like struggling as couples with kids. I'm hoping that next generation, it gets better as our generation starts to figure this out and break certain cycles. But I think right now is you've got the dads trying to help and saying, look, I'm also doing the work. I'm working, but I'm also waking up at night and I'm changing the diaper and I'm feeding the baby and I'm emptying the dishwasher. I'm doing all these things. But the mom is still not satisfied because somehow she still feels like there is like way more on her plate. Hmm. But that's where you now have the conversation, which I talk about in my book is the invisible labor. You've got the hmm. physical, tangible labor of childcare and household duties. And then you've got the invisible labor, the stuff that does not get seen. So I think the dads are now really contributing to the physical labor, the tangible stuff. In some ways, I'm sure some couples will argue that that's not even happening, but it's the invisible labor that they cannot see, they cannot understand, they cannot relate to, it's not tangible. So they're, they're, they're not doing that, but mom's expecting them to do that, but also mom's not able to explain that this is all that she's carrying in her head. And what is this invisible lab labor um, yeah, job. so invisible labor, I, I think I have like a list of examples in my book too, but it could be something as like, you know, an example could be, where do I begin? Let's say the example is you're going on, let's, let's keep it really simple. Let's even just do groceries like mealtimes, right? So if you've got you know, the mom is saying like, okay, well, I can't be cooking all the time. I need your help in doing the cooking because I'm working, I'm caring for the baby, this, that, whatever. So dad's like, all right, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and whatever will be my night to cook dinner. So you've got the act of the one parent being in the kitchen cooking dinner. Physically, they're there. They're the ones who cook dinner. Mm -hmm. But were they the ones to plan out the meal? Were they the ones to open up the fridge and see what needs to be bought ahead of time? Did they do the grocery shopping? Were they mindful of uh, things like nutritional aspects? Because if you're feeding the kids, you don't just want to keep throwing mac and cheese in a bowl every day. You want to think about the nutritional aspect. You know, were they mindful of things like, well, last two, three days they were having this. So today really we should have this for a meal. Were they thinking about, um, let's say allergies, there could be allergies or intolerances. Um, all this mental planning. If the parent did all of that and did the meal, 
they they cover the invisible and the physical labor. Mm-hmm. They did the whole thing. But what's happening is typically where the issue is they're doing the actual act, let's say the cooking, but the mom did all that other work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She thought about the meals, she did the groceries, she did the planning, she thought about the nutritional stuff, all of that went into thinking about this meal. Um, or maybe didn't. Maybe the dad did some of the thinking, but it wasn't to her satisfaction. That becomes the other issue. Right. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the other issue that we run into is, but I am doing that, but it's not good enough. Because look at the mm. standard that I have, you know. So then you've got, so this is where you start to see the division of labor become such a massive topic in sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what is happening is it, all of that, because you're in such a, honestly, like a shit storm, <laughs> trying to navigate all these things, work, life, yeah. relationship, yeah. marriage, friends, kids, 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 you know, all that stuff. You're, you're not having the mental capacity to really sit down and talk about these things and explain these things. Or if you are doing this, but you're still finding your, you know, self stuck in those toxic sort of communication cycles, because then I hear, well, I, I, I did explain all this to my husband um, numerous times and he said he would do it and then he didn't or he walked off or he became defensive or this and that. But then I wonder, well, how were you communicating it? How were you saying mm-hmm. it? What is the history of communication? Because if you've been critical for three years and suddenly one day you sat down and talked very nicely, I don't think your husband's already used to being, remember you've got the dance, your husband's already used to being defensive or walking off of mm-hmm. feeling like he's inadequate and can't get anything right. So now, even if you're talking to him nicely this one time, it's not going to land because he's still doing his dance. Mm there's so much complexities involved in just this one topic which is such a major topic and then you've got all these other things too right so it's really I don't know if I answered your question but that that's me trying to explain where the division of labor issue happens so you've got the invisible you've got the physical labor and then dad's not really appreciating or understanding the invisible labor because it's not tangible can't really be seen touched Mm -hmm. or appreciated Sometimes you've got mom saying, I don't even want him to do all this stuff. I'll keep doing it. I just want him to appreciate me. Just know that I do all this work up here while I'm also doing all the physical work. Mm -hmm. Birthday planning. Typically, Mm -hmm. moms are the ones who are doing all the birthday planning. Um, You know, trips. Sure, dad might be the one booking the tickets and packing the suitcases, but she's the one thinking about the sunscreens and the bathing suits and um, this thing and that thing and you know all of these things that go into packing and preparing for a trip for example one of the th- one of the things that you you have which I think is really cool is the idea of like some of some of this comes down to values that you have around being a parent and it's really important to perhaps like for couples to get these values down um, and have a think about, is this value a real, like, this is something that we believe around parenthood. This is like what makes a good parent. Um, Is this real? Is this achievable? Or is this like a fantasy? And go through that list and be like, good parents do this. Why? Uh, Good parents do this. Why? Good parents do this. Why? What are these values that we hold? All of us carry them. And they're so, they're hidden so deep inside. You actually often don't know 
where they've come from. And it's only when you really tease it out and pull it out from the depths of your of your mind and you look at it and be like, oh, I think my grandparents said something like this and it's become a saying in our family. And like, I think actually now I'm looking at this, it's kind of weird. And I can think I can put that aside. Um, I think that's something that that really resonated with me because all of these things often, not all of them, but some of these things can equate to values that we're carrying around deep, deep, deep inside that we've haven't, we've never dragged up and actually looked at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Some of them are deep seated coming from somewhere else from a previous generation, something that we learned from our mom or dad. Mm. Um, you know, even the whole like, for example, like being the really self-sacrificing, selfless mother who does it all, for example. Right. That yeah. could have been a value that you just picked up from your mom because she picked up from her mom. But if yeah. you really look at it, you might, might decide like, yeah, that value doesn't really serve me. That's not the value. And you might and you might not even realize that you're in a value conflict because you're asking your partner to step up and do things. But then you're also not giving up this role that you've created for yourself because you're still sort of espousing that value. Mm -hmm. so that's why it really helps to really look at what are these values that are coming into play unconsciously or consciously you know even something something like going back to meals um health nutrition all of right. that it's a yeah. value right mm -hmm. it is yeah 100 yeah. percent. and and maybe actually maybe a partner technically when he really sits down and thinks about it he might realize yeah, actually, I really care about that too. Now you've got some, and, and that is a value I want to incorporate in our family's life. Now you've got some internal motivation to want to do the meal planning and think about it. No, yesterday they had this and the day before they had this. So today we should do this type of thing. Or something else might be more of an important value. And you, you might say, you know what, in this phase of life, we can do certain things. Maybe we might not be the best with nutrition right now, but in this phase of life, this other value is more important. Mm -hmm. Right now, maybe it's more about just spending whatever time we can together with whatever energy that we have together rather than running around to this organic store to get this organic fruit to cook this one thing for this one child, you know? Yeah. So no judgment, but at least know what values you're consciously trying to incorporate in your life. Um, if there's value conflicts, you know, be aware of those, negotiate, compromise. Those mm -hmm. conflicts might not even exist when they come to your conscious awareness. Um, so yeah, I, I think the values talk off sometimes every now and again does come into play with my work with couples too, because sometimes it comes down to when I don't see a shift happening, then I'm like, okay, what is, maybe we're working with value differences here. Because maybe... Mm -hmm. This one partner genuinely does not care about this one thing. So even though they keep saying they'll do it, they're never going to do it because it's a value that they don't care about. And now we got to talk about values. Mm -hmm. Right. I, yeah, a hundred percent that, that, that's very, I think that's very interesting. I love, I love talking about values. I just think it's, it's so fascinating. You don't realize all these biases and these cultural things that you've been raised with. Um, and they can come to the forefront, especially in cross-cultural relationships. If you're in a relationship with someone of a different culture, but also if you are a cross-cultural person. So if you, if you've been born in one country of origin and then you take yourself to a different country and then you adapting to kind of multi multiculturals 
multicultural kind of things happening in and then that doesn't get into social values right you've got societal you've got cultural values you've got religious values you've got social values you've got freaking social media values now mm. Like imagine all the content, if you're the one parent, for example, consuming all this, let's say you're the mom consuming all the mom content on, let's say, conscious parenting, you're going to start to want to espouse all those conscious parenting values in your parenting, but your partner might not share those values, not because they don't care about those values, but he or she has not been consuming that on social media. So they're not even like, it's not even in their mind. Um, and then you've got the, I'm going to keep stereotyping here and keep saying mom and dad, but you've got the mom saying, you know, oh, you know, you, you gotta, you can't talk to our son like that. You have to do the emotional regulation and you have to do this, this and that. And then in the heat of the moment, you're having this argument and conflict because the dad's pissed off now because he's angry himself too. And he feels like mom keeps criticizing him on how he should talk a parent, the kids. Um, those are not, you need to have, if that is a pattern that's happening, that warrants like a separate sit down, totally separate conversation that has to do with, okay, we got to talk about our parenting values mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the issues is coupled try to talk about things in the heat of the moment right um and one of my biggest advice is don't talk about things in the heat of the moment that is not the time to correct your partner or tell them about conscious parenting or whatever else that it is um don't even talk about it as the aftermath of the the interaction actually have a very separate conversation on a day when you guys are happy connected yeah. laughing yeah hey, I noticed we, you know, we, we do things a little bit differently when it comes to parenting um, our child, you know, let's say when it's related to uh, whatever, um, you know, could be um, sports, let's say, like, you know, I, I notice you tend to sort of expect him to do this, 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 and I expect him to approach the sport in this way, you know, um, can we talk about that a little bit? Because I want to understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I want to explain where I'm coming from and see if we can kind of figure out an approach that works. Now you're having a very meaningful conversation outside of any trigger because nothing has happened. Yeah. And you're coming from it from a perspective of understanding. You want to understand where your partner's coming from and you want to share where you're coming from in a way that they will be able to understand and take in. And it's not attached to anything heated that happened. It's mm -hmm. a chilled out, regular conversation. Like you're talking about the weather, except you're talking about how we both approach our five-year-old going to his soccer lessons. You know, one mm -hmm. parent could be really like the kind who's putting pressure and the other parent could be like, wow, this rubs me the wrong way. I don't want my child to feel all this pressure. I want this to be like a fun activity. You could be fighting about this. And then the next day you might say, okay, well, we need to talk about this. Yeah. Or just, just wait, just, just, just come to a better place, connect, laugh, be in a good place. And now really sit down and talk about it one day when it's not that. attached to that activity or that heat of the moment, because then those emotions come right back out into the interaction. Let's close this off with some of the most beautiful moments of 
parenting. What are some of the things that you've discovered or that your clients have discovered that have been truly magical and amazing? Parenting or relationship? What are we talking about here? A relationship that has had children introduced to it. I think for myself so speaking for myself first I would say well that's a really good question I need to think about it for a couple seconds so I've got a five-year-old five and a half year old and I've got an almost three-year-old and I'm expecting my third as you know yeah yes yeah I'm like literally in that phase of life and you ask me that and I'm like wow I really need to think about this one but I know there's beautiful stuff that's come out um so I would say the one for me and my husband is I think watching each other become the mother and the father mm. and really coming to love and appreciate each other from a different place like before we loved and appreciated each other um, as friends and as husband and wife and now it's as father to my children and he loves and appreciates me as mother to my children so that's really deepened our bond in a different way that would have never reached that area had we never had we not had kids um and it's this mutual connection right it's like this shared love that's even outside of us for our kids that we both share in so deeply and so strongly that nobody else can be a part of. It's our special intimate thing. So I would say being a couple, having kids together, that's the beautiful, magical thing that I I can appreciate that I would not have known about before having kids. Um, And like growing together. I think we're both growing together. I'm fortunate enough to say that I'm in a relationship that's growing after struggles. So I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to, I want the listeners to remember that we hit our rough patches. Our marriage was not in a good place. It was rocky. It was not good, but we worked through that patch and we are on a path of growth. And now we're about to have a third kid. So we're probably going to hit rocky waters again. <laughs> and we're prepared. And my husband's reading my book. That's the best part. The funny right. thing is, he, he's almost near. I think he has about 100 pages left. He's the one who keeps saying, Yo, we got to sit down and talk about these things. We got to talk about the preparation. We got to talk about our expectations. And we got to talk about the roles and responsibilities. Every week, he's coming to me saying, We need to sit down and talk about these things, which is, you know, I, I love how not just supportive he is of the work that I do, but he's genuinely so open and receptive to the idea of growth and working through these things together. So, but again, he got to this place after some rough patches and we sought out professional support and we did a lot of work to to get here. So, you know, I just want to put that out there to the listeners who might be going through a rough patch or a turbulent time that, you know, there can be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, and you might feel hopeless some days, but there is hope. If you can do the work, you have to do the work though. Hope you're not going to get to a good place and you're not going to grow just by doing the same things. You really have to change things up seriously, um, but it's possible and you can get to a good place. Um, and, it, and, and so the same goes with my couples, you know, the couples who sort of start 
um, their journey with me and then they end with me, you know, I sort of do their last session, you know, it's, mm. it's the same thing. They experience this level of growth and in that this level of like love and understanding and appreciation of each other. And there's so much more compassion and respect and appreciation in that final session than there would have been in that first session because the first session was riddled with conflict and unresolved issues and resentment, you know? And then you have two people by the end of it, um, the ones who have done well and grown and surpassed those challenges. You know, they have this love and appreciation and understanding of themselves first of all, like a mm -hmm. very different outlook towards themselves, a more vulnerable, honest human outlook of themselves as a mother and a father, and then of their partner. Um, so I think it just shifts the dynamic of how you can see and love and understand and appreciate each other after you have kids. Beautifully answered. Well done. And so to finish it up, where can people reach you? Are you taking on more clients? How can people find out more about you? please let us know. Yeah, so I've, I, today is actually day one of my mat leave. Oh, she's off. That's it. Sorry, guys. Yeah. It's too late. So, but having said that, so I do plan on taking the year off. I'll be starting my practice back up. Um, I'm hoping early 2024. So a good place to reach me. So I'm only working with clients in Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of therapy. So if you are within Ontario, you can reach me at www.myottawatherapist.com. Um, and you can just contact me to see when I'm, I'll be taking in on clients and things like that. Um, if you're outside of Ontario, but you're interested in working with me on some capacity, then I am doing workshops, even while being on mat leave. That's a little bit of the plan. So I have one workshop that's on March 18th 2023 so coming up in about 18 days that one is on communication and it's geared towards expecting couples postpartum couples couples with small children um so that is to anyone anywhere in the world us canada anywhere um you can do the workshop with me on march 18th and i'll be doing another one in april and i'll just be sort of doing different topics right. in my leave um, I plan on doing certain classes and courses that will be pre-recorded and available on my website that I mentioned. You can find me on my Instagram at the couples couch. It's at the dot couples dot couch. Um, I do a lot of like one minute reels, just sharing quick, quick tips uh, for your relationship. And then of course, as my book pretty much covers everything that I would ever talk about or stand for it you know, encapsulates a lot of that. Uh, and it's Stronger Together, A Couple's Guide to Navigating Your Relationship After Baby. And it's available all on all Amazon websites. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Sara, Thank it's been such a pleasure having you on today. Um, so I just want to say... Thank you. Just want to say thank you. And I think like the Coupley community, I think will have really enjoyed this. Um, I'm really excited to to see what everyone thinks and just want to just give you a very, very, very huge thank you for spending so much time with us today. It's so appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Tim.